The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, that is our prayer. Essentially, we already prayed it, that you, oh God, would use your word in a transformational way in our lives. Lord, we're here because we want to hear from you. We want your spirit, Lord, to take the words in Scripture and cause them to find a place in our hearts. So would you do that, God? Would you help this sermon not just to be informational, but transformational? Lord, display your power and glorify your name. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, typically, our pattern around here is to preach primarily through books of the Bible, something that's often called expository preaching. And so, as many of you know, we spent pretty much this whole last year going through all 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah. I think it was pretty much a year ago that we started uh, that series. And we're about to spend this next year going through another book of the Bible, the book of Acts, by the way. And I think that will probably take about the same amount of time that Isaiah did. But before we do that, I'd like to take this five-week period of time and do something a little bit different and preach a series of sermons that's actually more topical in nature. Uh, I once heard uh, topical preaching compared to uh, camping, uh, where it's not necessarily something you would want to do all the time, but it's, you know, something nice that you can do on occasion. And so we're going to spend these next five weeks looking at the topic of uh, what are often called the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, You see, this month, April 2021, is actually the 500th anniversary of an event in the Protestant Reformation that's a very important event, something called the Diet of Worms. Basically, here's how it went down. Uh, You've probably heard of Martin Luther, right? Um, I'm not talking about Martin Luther King Jr., the civil rights leader, right? I'm I'm talking about the the original uh, vintage (laughs) Martin Luther. Uh, This Martin Luther was a German monk in the 1500s and really was the key catalyst that got the Reformation started. Um, At that time, uh, the only church that existed in Europe was the Roman Catholic Church. And so, of course, Luther was Catholic. And following the teachings of the church leaders of his day, Uh, Martin Luther exhausted himself in his efforts to purge himself of his sinful tendencies and gain 
a right standing with God. He reportedly spent up to six hours a day confessing his sins to a priest and also engaged in a variety of ascetic practices such as fasting for prolonged periods of time and going without sleep and enduring severe cold without a blanket and even whipping himself as discipline for his sins. So this guy, like, he did it all. As he would later uh, write of himself looking back on his own life, if anyone could have earned heaven by the life of a monk, it was I. And yet, Luther still sensed that all of his efforts and rigorous spiritual exercises and disciplines just weren't enough to remove the stain of sin from his heart or gain the favor of God. Like no matter how hard he tried, he could never measure up to God's standard of perfect righteousness. But then he discovered as he was reading the Bible, especially Romans and Galatians, he, he discovered that a right standing with God doesn't come from our own efforts or religious observances, but rather through faith in Jesus. And that was the central discovery, or we might say rediscovery, of the Protestant Reformation. That eternal life is a gift that's given through faith alone and by grace alone. Now, not surprisingly, that didn't really sit very well with the church leaders of Luther's day. And since there was no such thing as the separation of church and state back at that time, Luther was put on trial. And that trial is known as the Diet of Worms and took place 500 years ago in April 1521. And at the Diet, Luther was basically given two options. Either recant his uh, scandalous teachings or refuse to recant and face the consequences, which in all likelihood would probably involve him being burned at the stake, as was commonly done to those who were deemed heretics at that time. And in response to these two options, Luther declared, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by evident reason, for I put my faith neither in popes nor church councils alone, since it is established that they have erred again and again and contradicted one another. I am bound by the scriptural evidence adduced by me, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot, I will not recant anything, for it is neither safe nor right to act against one's conscience. God help me. Amen. Now, believe it or not, that didn't really go over uh, very well with the church authorities. And so uh, they declared Luther a heretic and an outlaw, and they issued a warrant for his arrest. However, uh, one powerful ruler was on, rulers, or was on Luther's side, and he actually stole Luther away and hid him in his castle, the, the, the Vortberg Castle. 
so that Luther was protected and he was able to carry out the work of the Protestant Reformation. Um, And I guess we could say quite literally that the rest is history. And so instead of Europe being dominated just by one denomination, the, the Roman Catholic Church, other denominations now arose. Uh, denominations that held more biblical views about how we can be rescued from our sin and enjoy eternal life. And of course, Luther wasn't the only one who carried forward the work of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, He was joined by others like John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli, for example. Uh, Men who, uh, like Luther, risked their lives uh, for the sake of the true biblical gospel. And these reformers emphasized five key principles, five pillars or rallying cries, if you will, of the Reformation. And these are commonly known as the five solas, uh, sola being the Latin word for only. And this is what we're going to be talking about in this five-week sermon series. So here's what they are, uh, very briefly. Sola Scriptura is Latin for scripture alone and means that the Bible alone is our ultimate authority. Although it can certainly be helpful to study church traditions and creeds and things like that, the Bible stands above even the greatest of these and tells us definitively what to believe and how to live. And this is the one we're going to be talking about today, sola scripture. And then, just so you know what's coming in future weeks, we have sola fide, which is Latin for faith alone. And this means we're simply saved through faith in Jesus, Uh, not by baptism or good works or various other church observances or church involvement or, or anything else like that, but rather through faith alone. Then third, Sola gratia is Latin for grace alone and means that we're saved purely by God's grace and not by any merits or achievements of our own. It's not even by a mixture of God's grace and our efforts that we're saved, but by grace alone. And then uh, solus Christus, as you can probably guess, refers to Christ alone. And means that he alone is the one who delivers us from sin and brings us into a relationship with God the Father and gives us the gift of eternal life. So our hope is in him to save us. Not saints, not Mary, not anybody, but Jesus alone on the basis of his death and resurrection. And then finally, we have soli deo gloria, which means to the glory of of God alone. And this sola really is the consequence or the result of the other four. Because if scripture alone is our authority and teaches us that salvation is through faith alone and by grace alone and mediated by Christ alone, well then the natural result of that is that God gets all the glory for it. So again, These are the five rallying cries of the Reformation and and really the five things that distinguished the Reformers from 
the Roman Catholic Church and that charted out the contours of the true biblical gospel, okay? And so today we're going to be talking about sola scriptura, which is the foundation of the other souls. Uh, you heard me say that uh, soli deo gloria is really the culmination of the solas. Well, sola scriptura is the foundation of the solas. We might say it's the seed out of which all of the other solas grow. And listen, my purpose here in talking about sola scriptura isn't just to give you some good information or to make you more informed about church history or biblical teaching or even to give you some fancy sounding Latin phrases that can make you sound really smart when you talk with me, okay? Now, my purpose and my hope for this time is that God would get a hold of your heart and that he would give you just a love and longing for his word. In my own personal times of prayer, just praying over this message, I found myself gravitating towards Psalm 1910, in which David is, is writing about the words of God in scripture. And he says, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, and sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. That's my desire for this sermon, that we would come to regard God's words as more precious than gold and sweeter than honey. So I'm going to be sharing a lot of information with you this morning. A lot of history, a lot of facts, a lot of ideas. But just know that I'm sharing all of this with you with the hope that it will help us all to come to regard God's word just as David does in Psalm 19. Uh, honestly, if this sermon doesn't cause us to regard God's word more as uh, more to be desired than gold and sweeter than honey, then I'm just really not sure anything would have been accomplished, right? So that is our goal. Now, as I mentioned, sola scripture means that scripture alone is our ultimate authority. And we might say it's the authority over all other authorities. Now, there are other sources of insight that can be very helpful to us, such as church traditions and doctrinal statements and godly leaders in the church. But scripture is ultimate, the authority over all of those other authorities. I've heard it said that while all of those other things play a ministerial role, scripture plays a magisterial and that simply means that all of those other authorities should only be followed to the degree that they align with Scripture and are consciously recognized as subservient to Scripture. Scripture alone is our ultimate authority. And you can see this view of Scripture pretty clearly in the story of Martin Luther that I just shared, right? Now, Luther told him, straight up, unless I am convinced by the testimony of what? The scriptures, and by evident reason, and that would be reason drawn from scripture, I am bound by the scriptural evidence adduced by me. And my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot, I will not recant anything. 
So essentially, Luther was declared a heretic because he took a stand for sola scripture. That was the chief grievance that the church authorities of the day had against him. You see, the Roman Catholic Church has the view. Uh, it had the view back in Luther's day, and it actually still has the view today, the, of a threefold authority structure. Uh, an authority structure that essentially consists of three components. Scripture, church tradition, and something called the magisterium. And it's really helpful to understand what these three components are in order to really understand sola scripture. Okay, so you're going to get a, a little bit of a history lesson for the next few minutes, but in order to understand sola scripture, you kind of have to know the historical context in which it developed and especially the beliefs that it was formulated to combat or to correct. And so, looking at these three components here, I think we're all pretty clear what scripture is, so that doesn't require much explanation. Uh, but then we have church tradition which is actually something regarded by Catholicism, not as something that is under scripture or even something that comes alongside scripture, but as the very thing that gave birth to scripture. Okay, that's a, a critical thing for you to understand that according to Catholicism, tradition is actually the thing that gave the authoritative source of revelation that gave birth to the scriptures themselves. So basically, in, in the Catholic mind, or at least the official teaching of the Catholic Church, Jesus transmitted certain truths to the apostles, right? Certain truths and observances. And then the apostles then transmitted those truths and observances to the next generation of church leaders. And then those church leaders transmitted those very same truths and observances to the subsequent generation. And then on and on it goes right down to the present day. And that transmission is called tradition, or sometimes more formally, sacred tradition. And part of that tradition is found in the Bible, but not all of it. See, there's plenty of tradition still out there that carries the full authority of God, and that's not recorded in the Bible, and that is instead manifested in various church creeds and observances and other church teachings. So we might say that according to Roman Catholicism, tradition is kind of like the mother of the family, and that it had several different babies, if you will, uh, the most important of which is the scriptures. And so scripture according to Catholicism, comes from church tradition and is a part of church tradition. And then the third component of this trifold authority structure is the magisterium. And the magisterium is just a, a fancy word. This simply refers to the teaching office of the Roman Catholic Church. And the central component of that teaching office is the Pope. All right, the Pope is understood to be the successor of Peter, the Apostle Peter at the beginning, and has the ability to make official pronouncements that are regarded as the words of God himself. Words that do not err and that carry full divine authority. 
And these official pronouncements are referred to as the Pope speaking ex cathedra, as it's called. And that's the core feature of the magisterium. Now, there are other examples of the, the magisterium as well, uh, such as official church councils and uh, the universal teaching of church bishops who are aligned with the Pope, but it all basically revolves around the Pope. And just to be clear and hopefully fair and even-handed here, uh, the Catholic Church wouldn't say that the Pope invents new doctrines, uh, but simply that he gives further explanation to church tradition. Uh, I believe a Catholic would be comfortable with that statement. And so basically, how do we know what church tradition teaches? Like, how do we know what scripture teaches? Well, basically, it teaches whatever the Pope says it teaches. And that's the end of it. No further appeal. Because the Pope will supposedly be preserved by God from any error at all and is able to speak with the authority of God, according to Catholicism. And so in Martin Luther's day, the institutionalized church, the, the Roman Catholic church, essentially held a monopoly on theology. And kind of like a corporation today might monopolize a certain industry by eliminating all competition. Uh, whenever that happens, people have no other choice, basically, but to do business with that corporation. Uh, the corporation has a monopoly in that it dominates everything. And that's the way it was with the Catholic Church in the 1500s in Luther's day. And how many Roman Catholic leaders and official Roman Catholic teaching views things today, at least in theory. Um, no other group or certainly no other individual is authorized to do their own theology. Instead, everyone just needs to listen to what the Catholic Church leaders have to say and believe whatever they're told to believe and do whatever they're told to do. Now, it's important to understand that Martin Luther and the other reformers that I mentioned weren't rejecting the importance of church traditions or, or the, the fact that church leaders are important. Uh, they weren't just advocating here some theological free-for-all. Now, they actually had a very high view of church traditions and of the need for godly church leaders. However, they believed that scripture alone is our ultimate authority, that authority over all other authorities. So all of those other traditions and all those other teachings have to be judged by their correspondence to the word of God in scripture. So according to the reformers, here's the, the critical thing that really defines sola scriptura, that church tradition didn't give birth to scripture. Instead, scripture stands over church tradition. So that is what's meant by sola scriptura. And very briefly, there are four aspects of sola scriptura that I'd like to go over with you. I really wish we had uh, more time to dig more deeply into each one of these, but unfortunately we don't. So I'm just going to have to cover them very briefly here. But uh, four aspects of sola scriptura. First, the inspiration of scripture. 
And inspiration simply means that every word in the Bible comes from God. I believe 2 Timothy 3.16 says it best when it states that all scripture is breathed out by God. Another translation says all scripture is God-breathed. And guys, just take a moment and think that when you read the Bible, like you're actually reading the words of God himself. It's pretty crazy when you think about that. We, have, we actually have access to that. That when we read scripture, we are reading the very words of God. 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21 puts it this way. That no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so it's true that people wrote the Bible. But as they wrote, it says they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that's why the Bible's our ultimate authority. It gets its authority from God himself. And because there's no authority higher than God, that means, well, there's no authority higher than the Bible. And we can see this pretty clearly in Acts 17, 11, which says this about the Jews in Berea. And now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now this is a particularly interesting verse. We're about to see. So just understand first what's going on here, right? The great apostle Paul, capital A, apostle Paul, was teaching the Jews of Berea certain things about Jesus. Like he was bringing the gospel to them. And the Bereans were examining the scriptures themselves, or at least what scriptures they had at the time, the, the Old Testament. They were examining those scriptural writings themselves to see if Paul's teaching lined up with that. So they were evaluating him in light of the Bible. Now, if sola scriptura weren't true, then that wouldn't be a commendable thing to do at all. Because Paul himself, remember, he was an apostle. He spoke with the authority of an apostle. And yet these Jews there in Berea still viewed the Bible as their ultimate authority. And they judged the teachings even of the great apostle Paul according to the Bible. And they're not criticized for doing that, are they? They're commended. It calls them noble, right? Then also to give you another example here, Jesus himself presupposes that the Bible is authoritative over religious leaders and over religious traditions when he rebukes the Pharisees in Mark 7, 9. He says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Then a few verses down in verse 13, he tells them that they're making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. So why is Jesus rebuking them for doing this? It's because he's presupposing sola scriptura. That scripture alone is our ultimate authority. And the reason it alone is our ultimate authority is because it alone is inspired or breathed out by God. 
that not only is scripture inspired, but number two, it's also inerrant, which means it's without error. And this idea of the inerrancy of the Bible is really a natural outgrowth and an unavoidable consequence of the inspiration of the Bible. It's because God inspired every word of the Bible. And because, of course, God never lies and never says anything that's not true, that we can be confident that the Bible is 100% true and trustworthy. The, the way it's often expressed is that it's truth without any mixture of error. And we can see this clearly taught in Psalm 19, where it says that the law of the Lord is perfect and that the testimony of the Lord is sure and that the rules of the Lord are true. We can see this also in Matthew 5.18 where Jesus says unequivocally that the scripture cannot be broken. We can see it also in his high priestly prayer to the Father in John 17.17 17, where he tells the Father, your word is truth. So we have the inspiration of the Bible, the inerrancy of the Bible, and then third, we have the sufficiency of the Bible. Now the Roman Catholic Church would say that the Bible needs to be supplemented with various teachings and traditions not found in the Bible. In other words, Scripture's incomplete. Yet the Reformers argued that even though there are certainly many truths in this world that aren't found in Scripture, right? Like truths about math and history and science and geography and things like that, right? Plenty of truths that, that aren't found in the Bible, but the truths that we need to know in order to be saved and to live a healthy Christian life are all contained in the pages of Scripture. And we find decisive evidence for this in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which states that all Scripture is breathed out by God, like we already said, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God, here it is, may be complete equipped for every good work. Did you hear that? Complete. Equipped for every good work. Another translation says, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Not partially. Thoroughly. If we need to know it, the Bible teaches it to us. As long as we have the Bible, and of course the Holy Spirit to give us insight into the Bible, then we don't lack anything that we need in order to live as God calls us to live. And then the fourth and final aspect of sola scriptura is, I believe, the most encouraging. And that is the clarity of the Bible. So we have inspiration, inerrancy, sufficiency, and now clarity. And the clarity of the Bible doesn't mean that the Bible's always easy to interpret in every area. Um, those of you who have read the Bible on your own, you know that's not true, right? You know it can sometimes be pretty difficult. But rather, the clarity of the Bible means that the Bible's written in such a way that it's possible for the average person 
to understand its basic teachings. So contrary to the claims of Roman Catholicism, you don't need trained clergy or church authorities to tell you what the central teachings of the Bible are. If you just read the Bible yourself and put a little effort into it, then you can discern its central teachings without too much difficulty. You can learn what you need to learn in order to be saved. Now, obviously, church leaders who have received training in this area are still very important. Right? I mean, the Bible itself talks about how critical it is for the people of God to regularly sit under the solid biblical teaching of godly church leaders. But at the same time, the simple fact is that God has spoken because he wants to be heard. I mean, kind of like when I speak. You know, when I'm talking to someone, I don't, I don't talk just because I like to hear myself talk, right? I, I talk because I want whoever I'm talking to to actually understand what I'm saying. Sometimes I think my kids like think I talk because I just like to talk, but I really don't, right? I talk because I want to be heard. I want to be understood. And it's the same way when God speaks in the scriptures. He wants to be heard. He wants to be understood. And so he's communicated in such a way that the average person can understand what he's saying. And we can see this in the Bible in uh, the several different instances in which Jesus rebuked people and even rebuked untrained people at times for their failure to understand what was written in the scriptures. He clearly expected them to be able to understand what was written. That's why he rebuked them for not understanding. And then also the apostle Paul wrote most of his letters not just to church leaders, but to whom? Well, to entire church congregations, right? And so he clearly expected them to be able to understand what was written and what he was saying to them. And uh, by the way, I know this teaching of the clarity of scripture might seem just like common sense to a lot of us, but don't miss how revolutionary this was back in the 1500s. And what a big deal it's been historically. Um, it, it's why no small number of Christians leading up to the Reformation and certainly after the Reformation have risked their lives and in many cases given their lives in order to translate the Bible into the common vernacular. That is the common language. Uh, for example, I think of William Tyndale, a man who lived in England in the 1500s. And you have to understand that back at that time in England, it was a capital offense to read the Bible in the English language. Meaning that you could be killed if you were caught doing it. But William Tyndale dared to defy this law and bravely attempted an English translation. Now, not surprisingly, he was persecuted and had to relocate to Germany and continue to work on his English translation there. But even in Germany, his life was still in danger since the English authorities figured out where he had gone and they actually sent agents after him to harass him and to have him arrested. But Tyndale nevertheless managed to complete his English translation 
and actually translated the Bible not from Latin, but from the original languages in which it was written. Uh, Hebrew for the Old Testament and Greek for the New Testament. And then after that, he used the printing press, newly invented, to print a bunch of these new English Bibles and have them smuggled into England. Now, not surprisingly, the church leaders were furious about this and they did everything they could to keep these Bibles from getting into people's hands. They seized and burned as many of them as they could. And yet many of the Bibles did get distributed. And for the first time, I mean, just imagine this. For the first time, thousands of people across England. I mean, we're not talking about some third world country, right? We're talking about thousands of people across England were finally able like, to read the Bible for themselves, like in a language that they could understand. However, the English authorities finally did manage to catch up to William Tyndale and have him arrested. And in August of 1536, he was formally condemned as a heretic and eventually burned at the stake. And get this, guys. The, the reason that William Tyndale risked his life and eventually gave his life was because he believed in this doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. He believed that ordinary people really could understand the Bible and should therefore have access to the Bible. He believed in sola scripture. And I hope that the, the story of William Tyndale and really all the things we've covered this morning related to sola scriptura are a great reminder for us of how precious the Bible is really is. Again, as Psalm 19.10 says about God's words, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. God's word is so precious that it would be worth doing what Tyndale did in laying down our lives so that people could have access to it. And yet, when I think about the story of William Tyndale, I don't know about you, but I can't help but think about the irony of our present situation. Unlike the overwhelming majority of Christians in history who haven't had a Bible available in their language, we now have unprecedented access to the scriptures. I mean, we have dozens and dozens of really good English translations available. Uh, and not to mention the, all of the study tools. I mean, we have more study tools to help us understand the Bible than we even know what to do with. And not only that, but we have all these things, not just in print form, but even on apps on our phones, which means that they're literally available at our fingertips wherever we go. And yet it seems as though the more access we have to the Bible, the easier it is for us to take it for granted. It seems like the more convenient studying the Bible becomes, that the less inclined we are to actually do it 
And so in a twist of tragic irony, we end up being in a place that's actually not all that different from people in England before William Tyndale. Only our access to the Bible is hindered not by corrupt church authorities, but by the endless barrage of distractions and various forms of entertainment that so often pull us away from any serious engagement with the Bible. Oh, that God would set us free from that. And that he would use these teachings of sola scriptura to remind us of how precious his word really is. And just motivate us to stop with all the silly excuses and start getting in his word on our own every single day. That we would let God's word transform our lives and saturate our minds and shape our hearts. As John Wesley famously stated, I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. How to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach me the way. For this very end, he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be homo unius libri. The Latin phrase for a man of one book. And of course, the reason why the Bible is so precious is because it does indeed show us, as Wesley stated, the way to heaven. It shows us how we can have a relationship with God. You see, the doctrine of sola scriptura is valuable because it sets us on a certain trajectory. A trajectory of looking to the Bible to see what it says about God, not to our intuitions, right? I, I recognize most people in this room are probably not tempted to look to some of the other sources of authority we've talked about, like Catholic church tradition or whatever it is. That's probably not a, a temptation for most people here, but what about our intuitions? What about what makes sense to us? What about how we feel about a certain doctrine? But Sola Scriptura directs us to look not to our own intuitions or what makes sense to us, but to the Bible so we can know God and know how to have a relationship with God and be rescued from our sins and enjoy eternity with God. And that message is encapsulated as well as anywhere, I suppose, in 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, which tells us that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. That is the central message of the Bible. Even though we were alienated from God because of our sin, Jesus is our mediator. Solus Christus. Jesus alone. And the reason he's able to be our mediator 
is because, as this verse said, he gave himself as a ransom for all. Jesus died on the cross to suffer the punishment for our sins and thereby make it possible for us to be reconciled to God. And then, of course, three days later, Jesus resurrected from the dead, triumphing over death and sin so that anyone who puts their trust in him can have eternal life. 